The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hello, everyone. You've tuned into The Glenn Show. This is Glenn Lowry. I teach at Brown University, and I'm a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, which sponsors The Glenn Show. Today, we have the treat of hearing an exchange of ideas between myself and Professor Richard Wolf, moderated by the lovely Lawan Lowry. I'm happy to say my wife. You've heard about her, but now you will see her in action. I'll turn the microphone over to Lawan, who will moderate the debate and introduce the participants. Thanks for tuning in. We will continue the conversation of capitalism versus socialism with Glenn and Professor Richard Wolf, Rick, with a debate. We will commence with opening statements from Glenn and Rick, and questions will be presented and responses will follow. The debate will conclude with closing statements. We look forward to, letting, to you letting us know your thoughts. Okay. Let's start with question one. Everybody ready? Let's get ready to rumble. I want a clean fight, touch gloves, no below the belt. <laughs> okay. In my formal introduction to economics, my high school teacher summarized capitalism as a, quote, winner-take-all system. Explain this from your perspective. Shall I start? Yes, let's start with you, Rick. Okay. Um, my high school teacher said pretty similar things, and I had no idea what uh, he was talking about, and he didn't seem to care whether anyone in the classroom understood him or not. He was so taken with his own eloquence that that sufficed. But the rest of us, the students, and I wasn't the only one, um, found it exciting. And we found it exciting because lurking in the professor's or the teacher's question was an implicit criticism. And when I was going to high school, criticism of anything having to do with the economy we all lived in was a kind of taboo. People avoided it. People denied it. Capitalism, whenever it even came up, came up as a celebratory object, something that was so remarkable, so efficient, so progressive, that anyone who was critical was almost automatically deemed either ignorant or in some way perverse or maybe a combination of both. I was already beginning to be uncomfortable about much of what I saw around me in my family and friends, in my community. And so I was beginning to be critical and inadvertently the teacher's statement about capitalism is a system in which the winners take all made me conscious, well, then there are losers and what happened to them 
and why would the system do that? And I think that was one of those early sparks that set me off on the road that ends up with me being a person who admires socialism, Marxism, and things like that. Okay, thank you. Winner take all, winner take all. Well, yes, there are winners and losers in capitalism. <clears throat> Taking all, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I think competition uh, is at the core of capitalism, free markets, free entry, entrepreneurship, people trying to do better for themselves, trying to outsell and out-hustle their competitors. And there will be, from time to time, winners who will prevail from time to time. But we'll know from the history of economics that these winners are themselves typically overtaken by outsiders who come in with a better idea, a new product, a new technology, and so forth and so on. So I don't want to fight against the idea that capitalism involves winners and losers, because life involves winners and losers. Um, but I do want to say that when I think of the difference between capitalism and socialism, I think about who owns the means of production and makes the important decisions about what happens with those means of production, whether it's private sector, individuals, or whether it's the state, government, whether it's the pursuit of profit or whether it's the exercise of political power. And I'm going to be trying to defend the position here uh, tonight that uh, we are all, in the end, better off if we allow, in the main, for those economic decisions to be made in the private sector. But in saying that, I don't mean to exclude the possibility or the necessity of taking care of losers. I don't believe in cutthroat cowboy frontier capitalism. A humane capitalist system is what I'll try to defend. Thank you. Rick, rebuttal? Sure. Um, I don't take much comfort from the fact that for certain periods of time, there are a few folks, the Jeffrey Bezoses or the Bill Gates or the Warren Buffetts or any of the others, who sit on top of a pyramid of both economic and political power. I don't take comfort from the fact that after a while they're gone and replaced by another group who do more and more, more or less the same thing. I don't find that in the slightest comforting uh, that's not preferable to me to having the same people doing it all along, uh, which has also happened. So for me, when I look at the winners and the losers of the system, uh, the winners seem to me a tiny number of people and the losers the vast majority. I'll give you an example. Uh, for me, the class structure really has very little to do with whether the government or the private say that's a debate that doesn't mean much to us anymore in among the Marxists and socialists that I circulate among. For us, the crucial difference is the employer and the employee. That's what distinguishes capitalism for us from slavery or feudalism or the other basic other economic systems the human race has tried uh, to live with. And if you look at it that way, then the class of employers, which in our population is less than 1% of the people, uh, ought not to be in the dominant position that they are relative to the other 99% of us who are not employers. Uh, and therefore, the winners and the losers is maybe a polite way to suggest that it's sort of normally or randomly distributed through the population. It never has been. 
the uh, desire of the employer class is that their children also become employer classes. They do pretty much everything they can think of, lots of legal things, lots of illegal things, to perpetuate the division. That's a problem for me, and hence the appeal of an alternative system correspondingly attractive. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. Glenn? Yeah, well, employers and employees, like there's not going to be bosses under socialism, like there's no class inequality under socialism, like everybody's got the same amount of power under socialism. The question is not whether there are bosses. The question is who is your boss and what motivates your boss? Politics will intercede when the government decides how it is that resources get allocated, what investments are made, what products are introduced, what technologies are used, where plants are located, whom to hire and fire. I would much prefer that the market and the signals coming from the market and the pursuit of profit and private gain drive those kinds of decisions. I don't want to leave workers out. I want workers to be protected. But if I start a company with my accumulated savings, with the investments that I'm able to attract and with the ideas that I bring to the table, that's my company. I didn't hire a partner when I hired a worker. I hired a worker. The fact of labor in and of itself doesn't give the worker the prerogative to, to tell me what to do with my property. This is an old, if I can respond, I don't want to violate whatever the orders are, how we well, can proceed. Uh, I'd like to hear your response, and then I'll give, give Glenn another opportunity, and then we'll move on to the next question. No, it's question. okay. You can respond, and we can move on. Okay, okay. Um, well, I, I guess I would respond in a number of ways. Uh, the reference to the person who starts the business, usually with capital, some money, maybe owning some equipment, uh, most of the time, if you look even a little bit into it, the person who owns it didn't make it. Somebody else did. Somebody else did the work to make the machine, to make everything we call capital, including the monetary representation of that capital. So there's an interesting question. How did it come to be your property or the property of the entrepreneur when the work done to produce it was by somebody else. It becomes even more odd when you realize that the justification for the entrepreneur getting the profit now is that he or she provides the capital which they didn't produce, but they got from somebody else, and now it's the rationale to get yet more profit, to accumulate the capital, which is how capitalism works, well, then we see that there are some people who make up all the things, and there are other people who, in some magical way, acquire that which is not consumed and therefore can be accumulated as capital. And if that number is very small and self-reproductive, and the vast majority are left out of the process, then we have a system which is unjust, which is functioning in a way that ought to raise a lot of questions. And the answer can't be, well, it's been productive because we have lots of economic systems that are productive that achieve economic growth in the usual way we conceptualize it. And at least in modern times, the most successful accumulators of capital, the most successful producers of value and growing the wealth of a society 
have been the Soviet Union in the 20th century and China today, and you'd therefore have a rough road to hoe to justify much on the grounds of production, since that would take you in a direction you probably don't want to go. Uh, we can't uh, possibly disagree more. The Soviet Union was the most successful economy of the 20th century. That in terms seems to me to be absurd. No, no. Well, me, I mean, you can defend yeah. yourself when you're, you get another chance to operate. China has grown the way it has grown in the 21st century precisely because it's moved away from centralized economic decision-making and has allowed markets, prices, and uh, the uh, free exchange of goods to take place there. And it has attracted capital. And that capital that has come into China has left with profits, profits that have uh, benefited uh, Western investors. I don't want to get into the weeds about uh, theory of value and Marxism and exploitation and so forth and so on. I'll simply say this. Labor is not the only factor contributing to the production of value. People bring capital and people bring natural resources and uh, raw materials and other inputs. They bring non-produced inputs. A theory of value, which attributes everything to either the direct or the indirect contribution of labor, I think has been refuted by history. Okay, thank you. We're going to stop here. And thank you for both of your strong rebuttals. Let's, let's, let's move into, uh, uh, let's segue into the next one. I think this one will be interesting. And I'll start with you, Glenn. Why does socialism strike fear in us? Ah, in us? You yes. too? This is news to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now, we've been having this conversation, my wife and I, for some time now. I think socialism uh, is um, wrongly uh, seen by many Americans as somehow a stalking horse for Marxist totalitarian, overpowering state that'll take our freedoms away. I mean, it needn't be so. There are socialist countries that have veered in that direction, but it needn't be so. I would not lay that at the feet of socialism. I think vested interest, I don't have a problem saying this, the people who are on top, who are wealthy, who do control the uh, e economic uh, engines of uh, production, uh, don't want to lose their, uh, their influence and their power. I don't blame them for that. Um, so I think ideologically, the, the evolution of the Cold War, uh, the characterization of the Soviet Union as an evil empire, the nuclear standoff, uh, the proxy fighting in one venue in Latin America or in Southern Europe or whatever it might be ever since the end of the Second World War has created an environment where, uh, and I regret this, uh, a uh, objective consideration of the relative merits of alternative ways of organizing the economy has been difficult to sustain because of the political interest and uh, concerns that I've called attention to. But I think even though that's the case, when we do open the discussion as we're doing right now and we try to lay the case for and against capitalism and socialism on the table, there are plenty of reasons, and I'll have the opportunity later to say what I think uh, as to why one should opt for the capitalist side of that, uh, of that equation. Thank you. Yeah. Rick? Well, I'm very glad that we agree on a lot of the things you began your comments with, and I agree that we, I think we do agree on that, and I'm gratified by that. And I'm gratified because it, it's, it means you have not been as affected by the last 75 years of stifling hostility to socialism 
that so many other people uh, have been. But I would like to comment a little bit on that in terms of, of me. I have never had, in my experience in the Ivy Leagues that I was educated in uh, or in the basic intellectual life of the United States, I have never ever experienced what I would call a reasonably balanced conversation of the sort that you deserve my appreciation for doing right now. Uh, but it's very, very rare. Um, I have not experienced it hardly ever. Uh, I can assure you that my the courses I was taught at, at Harvard, Stanford, and Yale, which the only institutions I ever attended, were all either ignorant of the whole tradition of Marxism or hostile, and very often both. But the notion that there would have been a professor who could have said, I'm here, I'm going to talk to you about economics or history, the, the fields I was interested in, and I'm going to present you with the Marxian perspective and the non-Marxian perspective, and then we're going to have a conversation about the virtues and strengths and weaknesses on both. I never had that experience. My professors were afraid. When I would raise my hand, as I became interested, I could see in their eyes fear. And the few who were honest with me in their offices afterwards explained to me, I can't talk to you about that because that'll get represented by some other student in the class, and next I'll be uh, get a reputation as the young man or woman, on, well, in those days it was all men, uh, the young man who was interested in Marxism, uh, and I, I don't need that for my career, I don't want that for my career. Do you see any senior professors around here who are Marxists? And at Harvard, not one. And at Yale, not one. At Stanford, for a very short time, one. Out of the 20 semesters I had, 20 semesters in which I got my, uh, my undergraduate degree, three master's degree, and a PhD, which is what I have from those universities, most of them in economics. Here, with the exception of the one professor, one semester out of 20, no one ever gave me one word of Karl Marx's critique to read. It was as if it wasn't there. It was that magical way in which somebody obviously in the room is magically determined not to be in the room. And for me, I then went with other students like me, and we learned it on our own because that was the only way to learn it. And I'm just describing a little academic corner of the universe. If you make it larger, we have a 75-year history we have to climb out from under in this country to catch up. I won't bore you know, your audience, but Marxism has changed dramatically in the last 40 years. Most Americans don't know it. In time. Do you care to rebut? Well, I, I know not so much as rebut. I mean, we don't have to necessarily disagree about everything. <laughs> and I mean, the Always statement wrong. of fact that you don't see Marx taught in graduate uh, economics courses in uh, the top universities in the United States is absolutely true. You don't see Marxism taught. Undergraduates, I'd be surprised if there weren't courses on Marxist thought in undergraduate uh, uh, you know, curriculum and de departments, but I don't have any data on that. I, I want to say a couple of things. Um, one is economics is a specialized technical at the high level, at the frontier of the academic, what's in the journals, what kind of research programs are being undertaken, what's getting funded by the National Science Foundation, what's being published in Econometrica, et cetera, what the brightest young men and women are being attracted to, the kinds of problems they work on. It's a specialized technical enterprise. 
it's not a philosophical enterprise. I mean, you don't see right-wing economics being taught in these places either. Austrian economics, whatever it is, that's quirky, you know, kind of weird stuff for the mainstream uh, economics profession. These men and women, they have their green eye shades on. They're doing their sums, you know? Um, it's become very mathematical. On the empirical side, it's become very statistical. Uh, so the observation that Marxism isn't taught to uh, mainstream economics students is simply a statement about the nature of economics, not about the nature of Marxism. As in economics as it is now being practiced in the uh, elite ac academy. Okay. I'll love one response. Okay. Please. Um, if I had time, I would explain that Marxian economics is an alternative way of constructing uh, a series of propositions about how economies work. Those can be formulated in technocratic ways, in mathematical ways. I could give you the literature to do all of that. None of that is brought in. It's not, it is excluded because it is at its base, a critique of capitalism. And this system is so fragile, it can't allow that kind of thing at the level of the people at the top who are going to go on to do what? My classmates are, you know, work at Brookings Institute, work for the government, work for the large corporations, or become teachers in turn at the same level of the same material. It's almost a kind of incestuous process from which certain folks are excluded. And the ironies become clear with people like me. Since we have the same training they do, my classmate at Yale and my class was Janet Yellen. I mean, I know what she learned. She learned from the same professors I did in the same classroom I did, took the same exams I did. I know what we both were taught, and we were taught something that systematically excluded even those Marxists who had been similarly trained, used the same materials, but reached diametrically different conclusions. A system like ours that could not and would not allow alternatives with all the credentials you could imagine is a system that must be very, very fragile beneath its veneer of self-assuredness. There is no conspiracy to keep your Marxist papers out of the American Economic Review. All you have to do is persuade a set of, of referees that it is advancing the frontiers of knowledge as they understand it. That's not a political uh, uh, agreement. That's an intellectual and an, uh, a, a disciplinary agreement. Much of what I think one would take to be the Marxist intellectual uh, inheritance is found in the humanities and in other social sciences which are not specialized quite in the way that economics is, has become. Maybe we're asking the wrong questions in economics. Questions, for example, about what drives the dynamism of technological innovation in the, um, in the uh, information age? What's going on in Silicon Valley? Questions like what are the implications of globalization and of opening of markets and goods flowing back and forth for the processes of economic development in various countries? I'm not saying Marxists don't address these questions. I know that they do. What I'm saying is that mainstream economics uh, gatekeepers are persuaded that the neoclassical approach, that is the assumption that firms maximize profits, that consumers seek to maximize their utility subject to their budget constraints, that prices get determined by supply and demand in a set of markets being balanced one against the other, that investment is attracted by the uh, anticipated rate of return, that expectations drive what's going to be inflation, et cetera, 
those kinds of questions are most adequately illuminated by a set of techniques. It's techniques, not ideology, uh, that's at play here. And as I say, Marxism is alive and well in the academy. It's just not in the economics department. Yes, and for me, for me, that's a reflection of the economics department. You'd have to make the arguments purely coincidental that this fascination with mathematics or technology happens just by some magic to exclude all the Marxists who do technical mathematical work alongside all the Marxists who do others. It's fear in the economics department that keeps them uh, exclusive the way they Paul are. Paul Samuelson was not afraid of anybody or anything when he wrote the Foundations of Economic Analysis. Neither is John Romer, the Marxist economist, and I'm sure a friend of yours, no bullshit Marxist, he tells me, uh, uh, not uh, somebody who a person like myself wouldn't appreciate and read his books and, and, and understand what he's trying to do. He's a serious technical economist. That is John Romer, and he's a Marxist. There are not nearly enough of him but he's speaking the language of modern economics. And most, if I may, Marxists don't. Well, we're going to have to stop here on, on this particular one. But thank you both for, uh, for your illuminating responses uh, to that particular question. Uh, let's, let's move on to the next one. Um, has neoliberalism been beneficial for the United States? <laughs> Who would like to? Uh, well, you want to define, Madam Moderator, do you want to define what you mean by neoliberalism? Well, so from what I understand with neoliberalism, uh, there's this uh, uh, allowing the markets to uh, basically dictate uh, what, what occurs uh, in our particular uh, capitalistic system. And... Um, and less intervention from government as okay. well. Okay. So I'm going to yeah. answer in the affirmative just so it will be an interesting conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, people have a lot of neoliberalism. Neoliberalism has become a loaded word. Uh, cowboy capitalism could fit under that umbrella. Mixed economy in the spirit of a Northern Europe, Sweden, Denmark, uh, so forth, could also fit, I think, under that umbrella. Uh, on the whole, I would support the um, kind of thinking and the kind of policy prescription, letting goods flow across borders relatively unimpeded, letting individual firms set their own prices and not have them dictated to letting money flow where it is that investors think they're going to get the highest return and not have that dictated by a political consideration. I would, I would support that. But I recognize, I mean, there, there are, and I'll be brief, arguments from the right as well as from the left against nihilism. I, rec I recognize that throwing open borders and letting goods flow in has consequences, destabilizes, unemploys, makes redundant and displaces. And those are real costs that have to be reckoned with. And it also has cultural consequences as influences from outside that are driven by commercial interests end up usurping long traditional practices and causing uh, upheaval. So neoliberalism is not without its cost, but um, on the whole, I'm going to say uh, two cheers for neoliberalism. Thank you, <laughs> Rick. 
Please respond. Oh, I see it. <laughs> I, I see it. I see it in two on two levels. One, the historical one, uh, private, relatively privatized market capitalism uh, with minimal government intervention and collapsed in 1929 uh, into the worst catastrophe of capitalism in its history so far. Although the ones in 2008 and nine and the one we're still in now uh, are trying to catch up. Uh, to prove that the collapse capability of capitalism has not gone away. Oh, and l- let me just finish. Um, and as a result, in the 1930s, the collapse of the economy, 25% on unemployment in 1933, this country lurched uh, to the left. And the form of that lurching, uh, led by the, the unions, the CIO and socialist and communist parties, uh, gave this country a, a kind of social democracy. The social security system, unemployment compensation, minimum wage for the first time, uh, government jobs by the millions for the first time, uh, extraordinary uh, explosion. And for the period from the 30s pretty much through the 60s, the notion of a private capitalism was a notion of a system that had proven its capacity to fail on a gargantuan scale and therefore had a very hard time. When I got my PhD, all my teachers made fun of Milton Friedman at Yale, just in case you know where I was. Um, it wasn't taken seriously. It was what failed in capitalism, and what succeeds would be a governmental supervision intervention on a regular basis with the capacity, particularly when the next collapse dawned, to take a step. We had a reaction to that, Margaret Thatcher, uh, Ronald Reagan, and all of the rest of it, and an attempt to bring back the cadaver back into life. That's neoliberalism. That's why it's called neo, because the word for private market in England is liberal. Here it has a left-wing connotation. It doesn't in the history. Uh, So it was called neoliberal to signal a return. And it was tried for a while, and it overlaps with globalization and all the rest of it. The gung-ho professors of economics who were cheerleaders for neoliberalism, many of whom are my colleagues and were and are, um, did not like to hear about what its costs might be. Glenn just enumerated half a dozen of them, rightly so. We were, not dis- we were not told to worry about the distributional implication or any of the rest of it. The problem is now resolved not by the debates among professors, which rarely resolve anything, but by the history itself. Uh, the globalization period, the neoliberal period, has been most successful in and for China, not for the reasons that Glenn gave. I would give different ones, but they've done real well out of the neoliberal period, and the United States has done real poorly out of the neoliberal. Both sides profited because it, it was a deal that both of them entered into voluntarily. No one held the gun at their heads. The American companies went there for cheap labor and to be in the biggest growing market the world has, as it is today. And they got the technology and they got some of the the hook-ins. The Chinese can outproduce us here 10 ways to Sunday, but they can't distribute it in the United States unless someone does that for them. Then, Let me just one second. What was done in this country for them was Walmart. Walmart becomes the number one retailer in this country because it processes and sells everything the Chinese had to do. It solved China's problem, 
making a ton of money. But at this point, the American economy is in such difficulty that suddenly the questions that should have been asked all along, and had there been Marxists, they would have been, about neoliberalism as simply the latest stage of imperialism that is old as capitalism, we might have been able to have the conversation earlier rather than have Mr. Trump and things like that force it on us because the social costs of divisions in America from neoliberalism are the most dangerous threat to this country that it's had in a century. Isms, isms, isms. Here's what I'm concerned about. A billion people living near starvation being brought online in a global economic system that allows them to achieve middle-class status. That's what's happening in India, and that's what's happening in China. Does it have consequences? Yes, it does have consequences. Walmart displaces the Main Street store. Uh, People who had good jobs and good wages with unions and everything else find that they can't compete and that they have to be reallocated to other kinds of economic activity. These are costs. These costs should be, uh, to some degree, underwritten by the social contract within a society like the United States. But on the whole, the world is better off for China and India coming online as they have with their billions. And justice understood properly, not as the interest of a narrow class of workers who don't want to move, but from a global perspective, has been advanced uh, by this development. Does it create problems? Yes. Are there crises in capitalism? Yes. You don't think there's going to be crises in socialism? You think the business cycle can be repealed simply by collectivizing the means of production? I don't think so. So (laughs) isms, isms, isms. I'm concerned about the well-being of working people just as rich. Rick is. I I, I don't dispute that for a minute, but I think letting a thousand flowers bloom and letting the economic engines run is the way to, it's the way to, a best way to achieve that goal. Hi, this is Glenn Lowry. I'm here to tell you about policy genius. I'm a man in my seventies. I know I don't look it, but there you are. My wife, my lovely wife is in her fifties. I need life insurance. It's very important to give her the security that she deserves. We all hope we'll never need life insurance, of course, but mortgage payments, childcare, and other expenses don't disappear when we're gone. Life insurance through your workplace may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it won't follow you if you leave your job. Since life insurance typically gets more expensive as we age, now's the time to buy. Policy Genius gives you a smarter way to find and buy the right coverage for you and your family. I had term life insurance at my job until I entered a phased retirement program, and I am now in the market to acquire a policy. I am going to make use of Policy Genius in doing so. Policy Genius was built to modernize the life insurance industry. Their technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from top companies like AIG and Prudential in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find the life insurance policies that start at just $17 a month for $500,000 of coverage. And Policy Genius has licensed agents who can help you find options that offer coverage in as little as a week and avoid unnecessary medical exams. They're not incentivized to recommend one insurer over another, so you can trust their guidance. There are no added fees, 
and your personal information is private. No wonder they have thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot. Your loved ones deserve a financial safety net. You deserve a smarter way to find and buy it. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you can save. That's policygenius.com. Well, I just want to ask this question uh, in, in light of what you just said. So uh, let a thousand flowers bloom with regard to China and India. However, we're, we're vilifying China for uh, its rise uh, over the uh, possibility of the United States with its economic uh, activity. So, Well, I'm not vilifying China. I mean, uh, I think y- you, it's a negotiation. There, there, there's trade. There are gains from trade. There's surplus. The surplus has to be d- divided. The cost imposed on incumbent American workers from the adjustments uh, necessitated by the uh, by China coming online are real costs. I'm not saying that they don't exist. We want good jobs at good wages. We want manufacturing in America. We want building in America. Okay, to a point, but not to the point that you forego the economic benefits from the productivity of other human beings who are viewed properly just as important in the eyes of God, if you will. As, as an American, the idea that you would forego that kind of economic benefit in order to prevent uh, those costs from, uh, from hitting is something that I, would, that I would reject. Rather, I would say trade adjustment assistance, retraining, relocation, uh, appropriate welfare state safety net. I don't want to leave people behind, but I don't want to leave history behind by not catching the wave, such as it's breaking now uh, in the global economy with the rise of these uh, formerly impoverished countries. Okay, thank you. Rick, please yeah. respond. Uh, I see it a little bit differently in the sense that um, I find it almost almost humorous. I'm surrounded these days by people who feel, who, who are very strongly pro-capitalist and who feel now a defensiveness. And I don't want to deny for a moment I get a certain joy out of it. No question. <laughs> I've spent most of my life here in the United States. I was born in Youngstown, Ohio, a poster case for the collapse of capitalism, if you want one. Um, I've had to be defensive about my interest in socialism from day one. And the idea that before I pass on at the end of my life that it would be reversed even a little was something I never expected. So I'm enjoying it. No question about it. And I'm enjoying the fact that I'm on this program in part because it's in the air now and that you're responsive to that, which is a compliment to you, and I'm glad that you are. Um, I've done more public speaking in the last four uh, four years than in the previous 50 by invitation. Why? Because I'm so good? Because my song has changed? Not a bit. It's because suddenly the audience has changed, and this remark that I make about these things is suddenly... uh, of interest. So here's it for me. The capitalists around me now have retreated and they want me to appreciate the increase in longevity, the decrease in poverty. Over the last three or four hundred years, there have been these things. And they want me to give capitalism the credit. You should. I find, what? <laughs> you should. Right. I find that remarkable. 
since capitalists have fought every single one of those advances. Every one of them. I'll take an example, the minimum wage. We live in a country where the minimum wage is $7.25. Last raised to that lofty level in 2009. We have had inflation every single year since, haven't changed it. To, to say that we have a standard of living, you know, capitalism, stop. Capitalism is the problem. The gains that have been made in the people of the world have been despite capitalism, not before it, number okay. one. Okay, I'm going to leave. Please. Let me just finish. I'll, I'll give okay. you a chance to respond. Well, absolutely, absolutely. And then the irony of it all, the place where the growth in the standard of living has been most spectacular, given the conditions and the, the counteracting forces, which is China and Russia, Russia last century, China this one, have to be swept under a magical rug. No, it really didn't happen. The statistics are all there. There's no dispute. Number two, that somehow, if you have to then admit it, it's because the capitalists came there. That's really a closed mind at that point. I mean, it can only be a positive story if it's the capitalists who make it happen. I don't think so. Thank you. Thank you. I don't even know where to begin. Russia is the economic model for the 21st century. You must 20th, be kidding. You have to be, for the 20th century, you yes. must be kidding. Nothing else but, compares. But, but the cell phone that I have in my pocket is not a product of capitalism. Silicon Valley is not a product of capitalism. The doubling of life expectancy over the course of the 20th century is not a product. The rising of living standard, don't count the minimum wage. Look at what people consume. Uh Living standards are high in the West, and they are increasingly improving throughout the rest of the world. And that's largely due to the benefits that flow from capitalism, in my opinion. There are natural experiments out there. The Korean Peninsula. They do capitalism on one side of the parallel, and they do socialism on the other side. Which would you want to live on? Germany after the Second World War. They did capitalism on one side of the line and they did socialism on the other. You saw what happened with reunification. Hundreds of billions of Deutschmarks flowed from west to east because that's where prosperity was being evidenced. The developing countries that adopted a socialistic economic vision languished for decades in Africa and in Asia. So I remain to be the Soviet Union, Russia. Is an economic model for the 21st century? No. Nah. For the 20th century. Again, forgive me, for the 20th century. Well, do... Nah. Just look... No, but... No, really. Look at the... If I, just look at the numbers. Russia is the most backward country in Europe at the time of its revolution. By the end of this century, it's the number two superpower after the United States. It went through a lost World War I, a civil war, an invasion by United States troops, among others, to put down the revolution, then agricultural collectivization, which was like another civil war, then the Second World War, and despite, all fought on their territory. And despite that, they come out as, as the second superpower by 1975. No other country can boast anything like that kind of an economic growth achievement, that there were social problems, of course. Social not, problems? Yes. Please. The Gulag Archipelago. That's yes. a social problem? Absolutely. A terrible social... Okay, I'm no. sorry. I apologize. No, no. Please. Nothing to apologize Rick for. Rick Wolf is getting at least his share of the time here. Absolutely. Uh, yes. No complaints. So can we move on? Oh, okay. I'm, I'm sorry, Madam Moderator. Forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've devoted equal time to both of you, so and I've allowed uh, 
opportunities to respond. So uh, thank you. Thank you both for your graciousness. Let's keep it. Let's keep it above the belt. <laughs> okay, um, let's let's uh, let's uh, move to the to the next question. Um, when Ron Paul ran for president, it's a long time ago. He called for removal of the Fed. If the Fed were removed, what impact would this have on the United States? Um, I, I'll yeah. let, I'll, I'd like for Rick to start with this. That's fine. Sure. Um, I have a, again, I'm a student of history. I believe in historical examination as a clue to how to solve our problems now. The history of capitalism has been a history of the people who love it and celebrate it and the people who are critical of it, like all systems, nothing unique about it. But one of the things that the victims of capitalism and the critics have often done, which I think to be a mistake, a distraction, have been to focus on the financial end of the system, not to see it as a whole system of production and distribution of uh, goods and services and money and debt and, and all the different things that make it up. And they focus their criticism not on the totality, the basic structures of it, but on one wing of it, as if this one wing pollutes all the rest. And if you can only fix that one wing, well, then everything else will work. So I am not sympathetic for that reason to the critiques of the Fed. I find the blaming of the Fed a, a mistake, missing the much more important parts of the economy. The Fed plays an important role. There's no debate about that. It controls the money supply. It is a mode of governmental intervention, which libertarians foam at the mouth about, as they should, since it violates most of their premises. Uh, but in any case, it it is an institution which in other countries is called the bank of that country. It's a central bank. Uh, our peculiar history, we can't call it a central bank, but that's what it is. Central banks are parts of accoutrements of interveners for particularly dealing with the instabilities that haunt capitalism. But as the core problem, it, you know, let's put it this way. We didn't have a central bank for a while. That's part of the history of why it's called the Fed. And when we didn't, you can think of it as an experiment. What would you do if you didn't have? If you're a modern capitalist country, the 19th century, you didn't have a central bank. What you had was lots of little banks, as we had in our colonial period, um, giving IOUs, which functioned as money. That, that was a system of such chaos, such corruption, such that by consensus of almost everyone, this had to stop private management of money was a disaster. Privatizing that system, was, that's why we have a Federal Reserve. To see that the Federal Reserve is a mixed bag, and then to conclude from that, we must go back, my goodness, that would be like in the Soviet Union, being critical of the Soviet Union, thinking the only alternative is to go back to capitalism and ending up with what you have now. Thank you, Rick. Glenn? I don't have anything to add. Okay. Do you agree? With uh, I agree that we need the Federal Reserve. I, I agree that autonomous money-making uh, uh, entities uh, writing pieces of paper throughout the country is a, a formula for financial disaster. I agree that the financial crisis of 2007-2008 uh, was managed 
at the end, avoiding the worst disasters in part because of the adroit deployment of the resources of the Fed. I agree that we're in the midst of a horrible inflation right now and the Federal Reserve Bank and its uh, efforts to uh, fight that inflation is an important part, not the only part, but an important part of an effective response to it. I think the idea of getting rid of the Fed is ridiculous. I don't know where Ron Paul comes from with that, except maybe some libertarian ideology. So I agree with Rick, and I'm not going to go through the history lesson that he did. I don't have anything to add. Could I add one point about the Fed? Sure, please. Um, I'm struck, again as a historian, that the Fed that we have with its problems is doing something which, frankly, I don't understand, or if I let myself go there, I might even come to some sort of conspiratorial analysis, which I normally don't like and want. I know of two cases in the American modern American history where we've had a serious inflation problem where it was handled without any use of rising interest rates. I would advocate for them, but that's not my point. My point is, why do we have a Federal Reserve that acts and speaks as though the only, the one, the right one is to raise interest rates? Even when Mr. Powell admits the pain of unemployment that that is going to cause and has already begun to. In 1971, Richard Nixon imposes a wage price freeze. It's a control against an inflation, worse then than the one we have now. It worked like a charm. It had its problems. All anti-inflationary policies have problems. But why are we not discussing what a conservative Republican president did and did successfully? Here's a second example. Early 1940s, Franklin Roosevelt, the Democratic president, he's about to enter a war where vast amounts of resources are going to produce for a war. Those resources don't produce consumer goods anymore, which means we're about to have a self-generated shortage of consumer goods. If we allow markets to delegate how this works out, the prices are going to be bid up. And the milk is going to go to the rich people and not to the people with a lot of kids. So we don't have it. My teachers advised Mr. Uh, uh, Roosevelt, substitute, shut the market down, which he did, and substitute a, a rationing system, which he did. And he handed out ration books and stamps to people, and that's how they got gas, coffee, meat, sugar, and a whole lot of other things. That was to stop an inflation. Why are we not discussing the pros and cons of rationing, wage price freeze? Why do we have a Fed whose ideological insistence on only one policy makes you wonder what that's about. And they are all specialists. Thank you. you Wage and price controls and rationing? Of course, that would be the socialist prescription. That's the road to serfdom. That's the road to empty supermarket shelves. The price system needs to have the flexibility to send the signals about relative costs and benefits. You don't freeze wages and prices. They're fighting inflation with unemployment because that's the only way it can be effectively fought. You, you, you don't solve the problem of supply chain uh, disruption uh, or of inflationary expectation by slapping on wage and price controls. All you do is throw sand into the gears of the well-functioning economy. You want to impoverish us. Well, Glenn, but isn't the, the increasing of interest rates hurting Yes. right now. Yeah, yeah. It, it's called the uh, inflation unemployment trade-off. I'm sorry, but this is the real world that we live in. There really isn't any alternative to that, in my uh, opinion. I'm not alone in thinking this. I mean, Bill Baumel, 
thought this. Uh, Bill Brainerd thought these are people that Rick knows that yep. I'm talking about. James Tobin thought this. Bob Sullivan, these are not right-wing uh, ideologues. These are people who spent a lifetime trying to understand exactly what's going on uh, with, in, in, uh, with inflation and unemployment and who understand that the only way to wring the inflationary expectations out is to allow the economy, the demand side of the economy, to cool down. I mean, we could talk about why we're into this inflation, and I'm not an expert on macroeconomics, not by any means, but wage freezes, price controls, and rationing are a disaster. And I hope that they never come to this country. And I'm, I'm very confident, given the political sensibilities of the people in both parties, that they will not. Would unemployment be considered a form of disaster for the unemployed? Yeah, unemployment is not good. Unemployment is bad. We live in the real world. There's no free lunch. Would you think that Mr. No, I mean, this point is really important to emphasize. We can't simply dictate what economic outcomes are going to be. We can't simply write statutes and change the underlying forces on the ground. There's no free lunch. I just wonder whether the logic here is, would then Mr. Nixon and Mr. Roosevelt have been advocates of a return to serfdom? I, might... I think the literature on the Nixon's price freeze is unambiguously negative in the economics profession, and I think Roosevelt faced a war emergency in which uh, he had to deal with shortages. So you got ration tickets. I'm not arguing that it's not only rich people who should be able to get to the surgeon or should be able to get a loaf of bread if there's not enough to go around. Poor people shouldn't have to... Uh, get to the back of the queue in an emergency situation. But that was an emergency situation. Yeah. Inflations, by definition, are emergency situations calling for unusual steps. You have liberals like Janet Yellen and, and even Mr. Powell advocating for the unemployment of, of large numbers of people rather than the price wage free. You, if you want to for example, Janet Yellen gives speeches, as does Powell, about the problem of unequal distribution of wealth. Okay, then don't have a wage price freeze. Have a price freeze. Leave the wages alone. That way they can rise. The prices can't. And that's how you redistribute wealth and income while you fight the inflation. What a wonderful twofer. No, not, that's I, how companies go bankrupt because they can't raise their prices to meet their costs. Wages are rising and prices are frozen. And you end up with unemployment and no goods on the shelf. Right. You end up with the Soviet Union. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. I'm not sure about that. But, yeah. Oh, uh, <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. I, I'm not counting on. By the way, you almost just footnote: almost every European country, at one time or another, has imposed wage price freezes. Nobody there ever argued that I'm aware of that this led to or had the consequences of producing Soviet Union. I invite the listener to look at what the American Economic Association surveys of members, where they ask questions about what are your views about uh, wage and price controls, and see what the profession says. Nine to one, they're going to be against free price freezes as a response to inflation. Well, I agree. Just do your research. The economics profession is not of two minds about what I'm saying right now. Having excluded the people who might disagree for 75 years, that shouldn't be too surprising. Okay. Thank you. Thank you both for this lively uh, discussion regarding this particular question regarding the Fed. Uh, this, is, this is good. Uh, okay. Let's, uh, let's move to our next question. Um, 
In his paper, The Economics of Discrimination, the late economist Gary Becker theorized that the market would correct discrimination. Do you agree or disagree, and why? Glenn, we'll start with you. I know what he was trying to say. I'm going to say I disagree because his conclusion, Becker, in his book, The Economics of Discrimination, 1954, this is the University of Chicago, this is Price Theory, He needs assumptions in order to get his conclusion. I'll be brief. Discrimination is when you have equally valuable labor, but because the guy is black or she's a woman or they don't speak your native tongue, you don't pay them the same wage. You pay the disliked group, the disfavored group, the discriminated group a lower wage. There's something called arbitrage in economics. When two things equally valuable trade at different prices, there's a profit to be made by buying low and selling high by substituting out the higher cost for the lower cost source of supply. Becker was saying that if you have any non-discriminatory employers, you only need a few, and you have an open capital market so that non-discriminating employers can raise funds to be able to expand their enterprise, then the non-discriminators will hire away the underpaid workers from the discriminating firm, and in the end, the equilibrium will have the wages be equalized. That's not incorrect as a theoretical proposition, but it depends on premises, which are demonstrably not applicable in many circumstances. You don't have enough capital in the hands of non-discriminating employers. You don't have uh, absence of barriers to entry or other impediments to expanding the non-discriminating sector. And so often discrimination will persist, notwithstanding the fact that there's uh, 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 a capitalist system or a liberal order because the conditions that uh, Becker specified uh, don't apply. However, they do apply in some circumstances. There have been studies of South Africa demonstrating that the government had to get involved on behalf of the apartheid interest in order to ensure that white workers would not uh, be uh, exposed to competition from black workers who were equally skilled in order to maintain racially preferential wage differentials in South Africa favoring white workers, the government had to make a law against firms hiring black workers and employing them in certain jobs. And the fact that you needed the state in order to enforce the racist regime is proof that unfettered market forces would have pushed against it. Thank you. Rick? Yes, uh... Let's hear your side of it. No, no, I agree with most of what what, uh, Glenn is saying. For me, though, Gary Becker is is a creature of Milton Friedman and all of that that existed there. They were a a one-trick pony that was uh, tricked out to demonstrate that whatever it is that the government could do, might do, everything that it did do in the 30s that they were reacting to would be bad, and having the government out of the story would be good. It was kind of simple-minded either-or. Anyone who ever done the history knows the government has always been involved in the economics of any system uh, where there was a state. Uh, it's true in Russia. It's true in the United States. It's true in China and so forth. Degrees of difference, yeah, but a lot less than is mostly made up for in these stories. And the pure market is a pure invention. It has really nothing to do with anything that isn't ideological in my view. I would like to just comment that the general argument about discrimination has also been made by Sam Wilson and others that if you let the market do its thing, 
then the inequalities of income and wealth will also be disappeared. We will have a uniform payment for all equivalent factors of production. Uh, I find it amusing, after 40 years of relentless inequality being worsened economically in the United States, literally 40 years now, uh, that the argument about how the system, if only left to its private devices, will equalize across people's inequality, reduce the inequality. I mean, capitalism comes into the world in the French Revolution and the American with slogans like liberty, equality, fraternity, and democracy, and it has betrayed every single one of them. It can't deliver that promise, and it is sad to watch the desperate, ever more desperate, theoretical efforts to suggest that maybe if you concoct wild presumptions, just as Glenn said, that never exist, you would get this lovely outcome, which we've never seen. Let me just say a word here in defense of Chicago, and I'm not given to doing this. I was trained at MIT in the 1970s, and they used to talk about Uncle Milty yes. uh, with you know contempt to, to right. a certain degree because of his views about um, money, monetary yeah. policy, and so forth. But... Milton Friedman was a great economist who made fundamental contributions to macroeconomic theory. George Stigler was a great economist who made fundamental contributions to the theory of industrial organization. Robert Lucas was a great e is a great economist. You don't have to necessarily buy all of the supply side stuff and all of the neutrality in the long run of money stuff to see that the technical virtuosity, that the incisiveness, and that the importance of this of the work of these people, Ronald Coase, these are Chicago economists, uh, and they were uh, important figures in economics in the 20th century. And I, I think, Rick, with respect, you do your argument a disservice when you import this kind of personal animus against people who happen to have a different ideological position than you do. It should be possible to recognize the uh, intellectual heights of achievement that the school of thought, which is the University of Chicago, uh, have scaled on behalf of the project that we're all engaged in here, which is trying to understand the economy. Uh, so, you know, I, as I say, I'm not a Chicago school devotee, but I can appreciate that the price theoretic tradition that Chicago represents has contributed an enormous amount to the intellectual development of economic thought in the 20th century. I would respond. Very briefly, Please, I would, would respond. Ronald Coase is someone whose work I use, so and I, I never mentioned him, and I wouldn't, because his lesson about externalities, about what it is the market can't and does not price in, yet we'd have to live with the Very results. Good. He's the same school. He's in the same. He, he's right there right. in the sweet spot of the Chicago. That's school. why I'm mentioning that I use okay. his work and I admire his work, and I don't even disagree with you that in their realm of price theory, they made contributions. My resentment, and that's what it is, is that they also were at the forefront of excluding people who did a different kind of economics from any position. I would know and respect their position better if people like me were able to interact with them in the faculty situations that we all know exist in these institutions. But we were all excluded. And I mean a we, you know, there are a lot of us. It's not just me. We were excluded because they were comfortable not just in doing their particular theory, but in being part of a Cold War program to eliminate all kinds of voices 
who could have and should have debated with them. And you can see it most sadly, because you didn't mention him, in the cases of people like Robert Solo, who, when they were young men, actually flirted with the same school. Robert Solo's teacher was Paul Sweezy. So was mine. I know exactly what happened to them. They, they joined a political process that excluded. And I'm sure you understand what I mean because they weren't the only exclusions. Well, you may not know that Bob was my dissertation advisor. And uh, actually, he wrote his thesis using Social Security data to try to understand the dynamics of uh, wage uh, inequality and how it would move from year to year. And I wrote my thesis as a theorist, not using any data at all, but using every brain cell that I've got to try to understand the dynamics of inequality within a population across generations. And Bob advised it. And we used state-of-the-art uh, Markov chain stochastic yeah. process, <laughs> asymptotic theory, dynamic programming techniques to do it. Bob is a great man. Yeah. Uh, toward the end of his career, and Bob is still living, he uh, turned his attention uh, very vociferously to labor, to manpower training issues and stuff like that. He was a part of the democratic, you know, uh, social policy establishment, uh, always been concerned about unemployment and uh, about uh, wage inequality and stuff like that. So I don't think he quite surrendered to the dark side, uh, even <laughs> though he did manage to stay in the center lane so that he, uh, he wasn't written off as an extremist. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because I was concerned about my health. My wife was getting on my case, telling me that I should be taking supplements, that I should be doing something besides the sloppy eating that I was doing and the lack of exercise that I was getting to improve my health. I wanted better gut health, more energy. I wanted to optimize my immune system. I hated taking pills and vitamins from all those different bottles. I wanted a supplement that actually tastes great. Now that I've been on AG1, I love it. It doesn't taste like it's super healthy. It has a kind of mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to each morning. So what is this stuff? With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health. It helps your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. All of the things. What I do is every morning before breakfast, I take my dose of AG1. Uh, it's become a habit. I've incorporated it into my daily routine. It really makes me feel better. I've noticed it abets my digestion. Uh, I feel like I have more energy. It's easy to pack in my bag. I take it with me when I travel. I use it without fail every day. It costs you less than $3 a day. You're investing in your health and it's cheaper than if you uh, were to buy all the supplements yourself. You're investing in an all-in-one nutritional insurance. Now, tons of people take some kind of multivitamin and it's important to choose one with high quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. AG1 is a small micro habit with big benefits. 
It's one thing you can do every single day to take care of yourself. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills or supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Glenn. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash Glenn to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Thank you. We'll stop here with that question. Okay. Thank you for both of your responses. Uh, here's our next one. Why is the rent too damn high? <laughs> <laughs> Can this laissez-faire free market ride in the real estate market lead to more homelessness? Shouldn't our government intervene? Rick? Sure. Um, I like to talk about the housing uh story because in my head and this is part of how I come to be a socialist there are certain things that the human community can now take care of for itself and ought to food clothing and shelter is a good place to start we ought to be able we are able physically to produce the food clothing and shelter the people of this planet need and the test of any economic system is whether it can do this job or not. And if it can't, that's prima facie evidence that maybe we ought to look whether there might be another system that could do a better job. In uh, most of the capitalist countries that I'm familiar with in Europe, there is an enormous part of the housing stock that is owned by and maintained either by the government, and that could be the federal, state, or urban uh, city government, or it is collectivized housing. It's, it's run by the people who live there as a kind of cooperative structure. Um, it would strike most Europeans as bizarre to suggest that they ought to leave the housing market to private enterprise. For them, this is then an opportunity for rent gouging and profiteering and all the things they associate, rightly or wrongly, with a private uh, sector market. And my reaction is, I look at the American housing situation, and I'm just appalled. I'm appalled not so much by the, the horror of what I see, but I'm appalled at the, the normalization of it, that it's acceptable, that we have vast amounts of empty apartments being looked at by the people across the street who are homeless. And the homeless look at the empty apartments and nothing happens in the population to say, what, 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 stop, wait, how is this possible? Why do we do this? And, and so for me, one of the first appeals of a socialist uh, idea, of a socialist movement, would be that this is, this is impossible. We, are, we, we don't allow child labor. We don't allow you to pollute 
the way you feel like it, and we don't allow there to be a situation of homelessness. So we, we can't put families through it. We can't put children through it. We can't, we can't have it. We can't have that kind of a situation. And I'm appalled that, that our particular kind of capitalism not only fails to deal with the housing problem, but, but somehow routinizes it so that the homelessness is blamed on the homeless, you know, blaming the victim kind of, because I can see why a society does it, because if you're such a failure at providing this basic human need, you better blame somebody, because otherwise you risk blaming yourself. Thank you. So now homelessness, uh, the mental health issues, uh, bad zoning regulations that prevent you from building the kinds of residences that might be affordable to uh, people who are on the margins is the fault of capitalism. Okay. Uh, here, I'll respond this way. I spent a week of my life reading Matthew Desmond's book, Evicted, about housing insecurity in Milwaukee. I read about, with my wife, we read it together. I read it aloud to her while she would be cooking dinner over the course of a couple of weeks. Um, we went with these desperate families uh, who saw their goods being set out on the sidewalk because they couldn't afford to pay the rent, who had to deal with rapacious, greedy self-interested landlords who wanted to exploit them, who've met with racial discrimination and class discrimination against themselves and their children when they uh, sought to find residents and so forth. And, you know, God love them. I mean, that that's it, it was heartbreaking. It, it was not just capitalism, although it is a question of social policy, but uh, Matt Desmond's recommendations in the final chapter of that book is expand the subsidies with housing vouchers so that you put purchasing power in the hands of families who can then go into the market and uh, find adequate housing for themselves, as well as a company that with a non-discriminatory regulatory regime that oversees how landlords deal with the prospective tenants so that people aren't rationed out because they have a couple of kids or because they happen to speak the English language with a Southern accent or they happen to have dark skin. And I think that's the way to go. My defense of using the market to provide the housing rather than building public housing is built both upon my theoretical convictions that the market is going to lead to a more efficient resource allocation in the long run, but also upon the experience that we've had with public housing, which has not been pretty at pruitt Igo and uh, St. Louis and uh, Cabrini-Green in Chicago, and you could name a dozen other places around the country. So Homelessness is more than simply a lack of housing. There are also mental health issues that are serious issues that need to be dealt with and that won't be corrected by housing adjustment. Uh, the kind of housing adjustment that's needed is uh, not simply building more units, but also uh, opening up uh, the from uh, zoning uh, exclusion, building the kinds of units, single residence occupancy, for example, for uh, individuals who are uh, in need of shelter, but uh, who might not be, you know, three-bedroom apartment ready. Um, uh, but if you're going to do something about housing, put purchasing power in the hands of families and let them go in, uh, in the, into the market and get their housing. Rick, would you like to respond? Yeah, no one that I'm aware of advocates that if you solve the housing problem, you solve everybody else's, but, you know, all the other problems people bring to it. Uh, Lord knows we have a mental health crisis in this country on so many levels. You might even argue it reflects the decline of the American empire or the exhaustion of our capitalist system, which I would, but that's not my point. Here's my point. 
Housing is a basic requirement. Whatever the other problems are of human beings, they need and they deserve housing. Housing in the United States is mostly handled as a private enterprise and a negotiated deal between the landlord on the one hand and the renter on the other or the seller of the house and the buyer. In this negotiation, this market-driven negotiation, there are, of course, all kinds of governmental and other policies that impact on that market. That's always true. The notion of a market that isn't impacted is a heuristic device of both libertarians and neoclassicals in order to make the arithmetic work. I've done this work a million times in my life. Nobody who's serious about that would imagine that the markets we've ever seen anywhere have that quality. We are supposed to think about them and then move in that direction. There's a whole theoretical apparatus called second best theory, which tries to argue how and why an approximation might be a reasonable uh, policy step. For me, I see a market whose end result has been homelessness, whose end result, given the other problems of society, has to plunge the people who need housing the most into the situation where it's accessible the least and vice versa. And I'm struck that it's so normalized that whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, it doesn't seem to matter. Final thought. Here in New York right now, we have a a double problem. We have, depending on who you believe, 100,000, give or take, homeless people. That's an awful lot. We just got a 20,000 more because right-wing governors in the South United States are shipping people here. You may not know it, but the law here in New York says you can't be evicted without being given a lawyer, if you can't afford one, to go through a whole procedure at court. But they don't have enough lawyers in the legal aid system, and the courts are overwhelmed. So guess what? They're evicting people, and they're violating the law. They don't get a lawyer, and they get thrown out on the street. This is not an aberration. This has been the history of public of the housing available for our public. You want to solve the problem with the market? Do it. Either the prices have to come down or the wages that people can access have to go up so that they can make the deal. We don't do that. We have a market which puts them in a position where they end up homeless. And I am, for me, I rest my case. That alone would be a good argument to explore something other than capitalism to see whether it could do a better job. Thank you. We tried public housing in big cities on a large scale, and you saw what happened. Right. Well, maybe okay. we should try a different way. You put rent control in the housing market, you're going to end up with problems on the supply side because guess what? People actually have to be able to see themselves making money before they go into the trouble of producing housing. Right. And You, but you, you, you can turn housing people over to the public sector if you want to, but um, I wouldn't advise it. But, well... I want people to have a voucher that gives them enough purchasing power that when they go to rent the apartment and they can't afford to pay any more than $400, they've got a $500 voucher so they can pay a $900 a month rent. And I want the supply side of that market to be in the hands, in the main, of individual people who decide that they're going into the business of selling housing services for a profit. I want them to be regulated so that they can't exploit their position uh, or discriminate unfairly against prospective buyers. But on the whole, that's what I'd like to see. And we're going to have homelessness even if we solve the housing supply 
problem because a lot of the homelessness is not itself a function of the inability to pay for an apartment. It's a function of the inability to get one's life together. You know, people deserve help to be sure. I don't blame them for their circumstance, but nevertheless, a drug addict is a drug addict, et cetera. Okay, thank you. We'll, we'll leave that one and move on to the next. Uh, lively discussion so far. Thank you uh, for, uh, I'm certainly, uh, I've learned a whole lot from <laughs> listening to the both of you and both of your sides uh, of these matters. Uh, okay. You, you have a future in diplomacy. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> um, okay. I think we can uh, we can we can go with one more. Um, can there be a kinder, gentler form of capitalism? Glenn, let's start with you. Yeah. Um. I think that means, can you have a basically capitalist economy, private property, free enterprise, markets, and the means of production in the hands of individual and corporate entities, not the government, and yet have a decent society, a safety net that really catches people so that they don't fall through, provides for the elderly, makes sure that health care is available to people who otherwise would not be able to afford it, uh, and so forth. And yes, I think you can. Uh, I think that the admirable achievements of socially democratic, and I'm not a social democrat by political party affiliation, but I could be persuaded. The admirable achievements in Germany, uh, in Sweden, in Denmark, in the Netherlands, in France, for that matter, of basically socially democratic oriented private property uh, embracing capitalists with a mixed economy and a good social safety net societies demonstrates what's possible. Can the United States be made a better, more decent, more um, humane place to, uh, to live? Sure we can. Do we have to have incarceration on the scale that we have it now and of the nature that we have it? No, we don't. Do children have to fend for uh, health care uh, to the extent that they have now? Or does education have to underserve the populations that it most definitively underserves to the extent that it does? No, it need not. And there will be arguments about that. And some of those arguments will involve mar market-oriented solutions and the introduction of private initiative into, uh, the, uh, into the equation, as well as the provision of regulation and so on. So, yeah, there could be a kinder and gentler capitalism in the United States. Yes, I would concede that the Northern, Democrat, Northern European Democratic Socialist uh, political economy points in, the, uh, in a direction that I would uh, actually be prepared to embrace. But at the end of the day, the bedrock has got to be, in my opinion, if we want to sustain our prosperity and if we want to sustain our freedom. I didn't even... Maybe in the closing arguments, I'll make some observations about the links between economic organization and political freedom. Uh, it has to be a capitalist order. Okay. Rick? Um, sure. Um, in Europe, it's called capitalism with a human face. So they would ask, is that possible? And they would answer in the main, more or less as Glenn has. I, I don't have much disagreement. Capitalism has been able, 
at least for some periods of time, uh, to have a social safety net of some real value uh, for its people. Um, absolutely. The problem is if you have a society divided in every workplace, factory, office, store, between a tiny minority of people who are the owners, the major shareholders, the boards of directors selected by those shareholders, on the one hand, and a vast number of people who work there, the employees on the other, you've got a structure which is not only capable of, but has shown itself over and over again, only under pressure to provide these social supports that give it a human face, and as soon as the opportunity arises, to withdraw it again. They had to give it in the 1930s, that was the New Deal, and they fought to undo the New Deal in the next 50 years that we're still living in now. For me, therefore, leaving the capitalist system, leaving a system that does not bring democracy into the workplace, where people can decide collectively what's best for them in how they work, where they work, when they work, and what's done with the fruit of their labor, how it's divided. If you don't do that, you create it in the midst of your economic system, conflict, bitterness, envy. You can overcome them for a while. You can modify them with a social safety net. Doesn't last usually very long. We're living through that now in the United States. And therefore, for me, the only way to permanentize, to, to, to hold on to the times when capitalism had a human face was to realize that jettisoning the capitalism is the way to move towards institutionalizing that which we find positive in those rare moments when capitalism has allowed it. I'll stop with that. Thank you. Thank you. Let's... Um Let's conclude our lively discussion with um, closing statements. And Rick, since you're our guest, okay, we'll let you start first. Right. Um, people have always, often asked me, what is socialism? And I sometimes go through all the specifics, uh, which mostly involves me explaining that there are radically different ideas of that question, been debated, hotly debated. For as long as there's been capitalism, there's been socialism. And for as long as there's been socialism, there's been debates among socialists about what it means. So my answer then becomes very vague in general because it has to. Socialism is the yearning to do better than capitalism. That's what it's about. It reflects the age-old human notion, we can do better than what we have. It's what enabled the most, the earliest people to break out of their dependence on, on wood and stone, to be able to fashion other tools. It, it enables the progress out of village. It, it's what drives the slave to say, I can do better than be a slave. The serf, I can do better than be a serf. And the employee who can do better than to be an employee. That yearning to do better when you're an employee is socialism. It's the idea we don't have to accept the organization of a society so unequal in its wealth, so unequal in its power, so riven by the instabilities that come from that, 
The National Bureau of Economic Research teaches us that capitalism has an economic downturn on average every four to seven years. Some are short and shallow, some are long and deep. But an instability like that ought to have led us to ask the question, gee, can't we do better than a system as unstable as that? If you lived with a person as unstable as capitalism, you would have moved out long ago. So my answer is, let's have what this country has feared to do, a real open-ended conversation like the one we've just done here. And thanks to both of you for making that possible. Let's talk about the pros and cons. Let's hear each other's arguments. Let's see what we have to come back with when someone makes an argument that strikes us as having something we need to think about that we didn't think about before, that we can look at again or look at with a new eye. That's not really asking so much. And in the United States, which prizes itself on its openness and freedom, we haven't had it. We haven't had it for 75 years. We don't have it now. Every time the United States has an adversary, we demonize him. Mr. Putin is the worst thing. Uh, Saddam Hussein was the worst thing. Everybody's Everybody's Hitler. It's an extraordinary fearfulness that I see here and that we would be better off as a society if we opened ourselves up and had real discussions, and that means socialism's problems and socialism's historic horrors, they go on the table too. No exemptions. Let's have that conversation. I'm ready for it, and I think most socialists in America are, but then we have the unfortunate privilege of being the ones who've been excluded, so it's kind of easy for us to ask for the inclusion. I only wish that those who have excluded us might in these declining years of the American system, be open to the conversation that they weren't ready to have when they really were in a stronger position than they are now. Thank you. Glenn, let's hear uh, yours. Okay, well, I'm, I'm not going to go there with you, Richard, and fight these old battles about the status of Marxism within the matrix of economic thought in the United States. I'm not going to go there. I'm, I've been tempted, but I won't rise to the bait. <laughs> okay. I'm just going to try to be succinct here in stating why I took the capitalism side of this uh, debate. It's because of what I know about economic theory, because what I know about economic history, and because what I know about economic liberty. Economic theory teaches me that the price system as a mechanism for coordinating the activities of large numbers of diverse people is without parallel, that incentives drive behavior, that creativity is fostered and furthered by the anticipation of gain associated with entrepreneurship, innovation, and so forth, that if you want package delivery out of the post office, go with socialism. If you want health care out of the Veterans Administration, go with socialism. If you want to order your goods from a Sears catalog, go with socialism. If you want the fruit of the modern world, computers that we carry in our pockets, which are enormously powerful, living to be 80 and 90 years old without blinking an eye, being able to travel from one side of the globe to another in less than a day. If you want to live in the 21st century with all of the benefits of the economic development that we've experienced over the, over the centuries, 
then you don't want to issue capitalism. That's what I know about economic theory. What I know about economic history is, and I've pointed this out, we've had certain natural experiments. North Korea is a basket case. South Korea is a cornucopia. That's because of capitalism. West Germany was a prosperous society. East Germany was a place they had to build walls to keep the people in. That's because of socialism. So, you know, I wish that you could simply wave your hand and make the world a better place, but bringing socialism to the United States of America will not be an omelet made without breaking some eggs. It will not happen without seizing people's property. It will not happen without abrogating people's liberty. It will not happen, I dare say, without violence. That's what we've seen throughout the history of the 20th century, where the socialists have done exactly what Rick advises that they do, try to make the world a better place. I'm against that. Thank you. I have a lot of questions with regard to your statement, but... Uh, <laughs> we have a lifetime to explore them. <laughs> we have a lifetime to explore them. <laughs> but if you want to make a closing statement, Madam Moderator, you should feel free to do Absolutely. so at my expense if necessary. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, uh, thank you both. Um, I will say that, um, yes, uh, perhaps those countries that you enumerated, uh, socialist countries you enumerated, have had problems, but some of those problems as a result of some of the policies of, of the capitalist countries. Um, yes? I guess <laughs> Cuba might be your leading case in point. Maybe Venezuela would fit in there somehow. Cuba, and Rick's Cuba, gonna Venezuela, invoke the, yes. the Cold War uh, yes. opposition to the Soviet Union left and right. It's a global system. So, and, and U.S. militarism and imperialism are real historical forces. And Surely the Sandinistas might have had an easier go with it in Nicaragua if the cultures hadn't been nipping at their heels and so on. Uh, I can see this Vietnam was a mistake, et cetera. We could go down the list. Um, but uh, uh, I, I, I want to say this, uh, you know, maybe I can put it this way. It is a global system and the forces are large and, and I, I think you need, more perspective on history than perhaps we are able to enjoy right now to see at the end of the day what the, suppose the Soviet Union had won the Cold War. Suppose Eastern Europe had stayed under the Soviet boot. Suppose Germany had not been reunited. Suppose there had been no intervention in Southeast Asia. Uh, what would have happened? That counterfactual is not obvious to me, uh, not in the least. Um, and I'll just say one final thing, if I may. All right. The business cycle is a global phenomenon. You can change the economic organization of the United States of America, and you will not eliminate the fact that the uh, level of economic activity on the global integrated economy rises and falls. I don't think you can blame that on capitalism. I see no evidence that socialism refutes the business cycle. Can I respond to that? Please, please. I made reference earlier on to the changes and developments in socialism over the last 30 or 40 years. And I really, I understand and I have really no criticism that it's not understood here in the United States because given the exclusion and taboo on the whole Marxian theoretical uh, enterprise that Americans would not know what has happened 
is simply a reflection of that exclusion. It's not a lack of, of, of interest or even sympathy. So let me summarize real quick. Class is not about whether the government or the private sector do something. That debate is old. That debate is very stale. It has been gone over for at least 150 to 200 years, if not older. And it has, for some of us who are socialists, no interest. Our notion of socialism is not about more government, less government, none of that. And part of that is a response to the fact that governments, socialist governments, did a lot of things we don't like at all that are very like capitalism, which we don't like at all. And therefore, we had to think, well, what's going on? And here's what it ended up with. Class is about something else. It's about the production and distribution of something called a surplus, or if you like, about the organization of the people who participate in production in a small group who get the profit into their own hands and decide what to do with it and tell everybody else what to do. Those are the employers and then a mass of people that are employees. If you call yourself a socialist, but you reproduce that structure, then you aren't. You have the right to call yourself anything in the world. You could be a banana, it doesn't matter. You call yourself a socialist, but you adopted the same organization of the factory, the office, and the store as the system you say you are rejecting. That's a problem. If you go to Marx's Capital, the whole first volume, the one he wrote himself, is all about the relationship between the employer and the employee. And therefore, if you're going to break out of the system, you got to break with that. Which means that to bring socialism is to bring democracy into the workplace from which it was excluded by capitalism Excuse from me, the Rick, beginning. Where has this ever been effectively accomplished? Uh, was a, the Soviet Union a classless society under no, at the height of, of the... Not. Any more than the United States was. We, okay. we, we have to stop here, yeah. gentlemen. We're about to uh, start up again. and <laughs> Ding, 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 well, ding. <laughs> but that, so, that shows that it's alive. It's good. It's okay. all good. It's, yes, it's, it's in yes, the can. thank you. Uh, I'll wrap up. Um, thank you for joining us. If you are looking for winners or losers as a result of this uh, discussion slash debate, uh, we respect you. However, we hope that you gained a wider perspective and a deeper respect for different schools of thought on the theories and policies that affect all of us. This concludes The Glenn Show.